This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, as part of our Town Hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we present two Democratic candidates for the state legislature from the 29th Legislative District. Join us now for a conversation with Representative Steve Kirby and Charlotte Mena. This conversation was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, July 28th. Hello, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Indivisible Town Hall. My name is Stephen Cox. I host the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. My thanks to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Anjievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. A huge thank you tonight to Port of Tacoma Commissioner Kristen Ong. Barb Church, Kimber Starr, and especially Nikki Walters. And of course, thanks to all of you for joining us tonight, whether you're joining us live or are listening via the podcast or are you are listening on one of the terrestrial radio stations here in the state that carries the show. Uh, we are so glad that you are with us. And also a special welcome to State Senator Claire Wilson, if you are with us tonight. Before I get started, I want to acknowledge that we live and work on the ancestral homelands of many indigenous peoples throughout the Pacific Northwest. We wish to express our deepest respect and gratitude for our indigenous neighbors for their enduring care and protection of our shared lands and waterways. So tonight, we are going to be speaking with two candidates for the state legislature in the 29th Legislative District. This is a district that includes South Tacoma, parts of Lakewood, Parkland, Spanaway, and Fredrickson. So here's how it's going to go. We're going to begin by having each candidate introduce him or herself, and then we're going to have a series of platform questions. And time permitting, we will also have some audience questions. We have received a number of great questions from you ahead of time, and I've worked to incorporate those into the program. Uh, If you have a question tonight, do enter it into the chat bar and we will try to get to it if we can. Because we only have an hour, I have asked the candidates to limit their answers to two minutes and to not use the full two minutes if they don't need to because we have so much to to cover tonight. And I will also stress that uh, while they are both running for the same seat, we have asked that tonight be a clarification of positions and platforms as opposed to a debate. So with all that out of the way, let's meet our candidates. Charlotte Mena is special assistant to the director of the Washington State Department of Ecology. Previous to that, she worked in Congress, where she helped individuals sign up for health care. She also worked in the state legislature where she established Spanish language resources and a new sexual harassment reporting system and was part of the team that helped pass the Washington Voting Rights Act. She then worked with the office of the governor to protect Washingtonians against the Trump administration. Representative Steve Kirby is the incumbent in position two, and he has served in the legislature since 2001. He is chair of the House Committee on Consumer Protection and Business. He also sits on the Civil Rights and Judiciary Committee, as well as the Commerce and Gaming Committee. Formerly, he served on the Tacoma City Council, and in his professional life, he is community relations representative at Harborstone Credit Union. Representative Steve Kirby, Charlotte Mena, thank you both so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having us and for this opportunity to engage with voters in the 29th. Well, Charlotte, let's start with you. And why don't you take a, just a couple moments to introduce yourself, talk a little bit more about your background, some of your achievements, and why you feel those have prepared you for the job of representative. Absolutely. Thank you. So thank you again for having me. My name is Charlotte Mena. I'm the very proud daughter of Mexican immigrant farm workers. My mom came here from Mexico, working her way up through the fields of California and into Washington state. And she is absolutely the hardest worker I know. And she taught me to work hard. So I'm running because I really wanna work hard for my community. You know, looking around the 29th is full of hard workers. It's full of diversity. And most of all, it's full of grit. Um, and these are folks that sometimes feel like they're working against the odds, right? Like. We are dealing with a quadruple crisis. We have a global health pandemic on our hands. We've got economic fallout, police violence, and an administration that is dead set on rolling back civil rights and environmental protections. I have the lived experience of a Latinx woman from an immigrant community, which is shared by many in our district. Um, 15% of our folks are foreign born. You know, 50% of our district are people of color. And I want to make sure that everyone, all 100% of the people that live here, have great representation. Now, I also bring that federal experience and understanding how the federal government works in tandem with the state government is more critical now than ever as we're working on economic recovery. And third is my experience working on the environment. We have some of the worst air pollution of anywhere in the state in the 29th district. We've also got some water quality problems near JBLM. And it takes someone who really knows how to work with the communities, who knows how to honor sovereign nations and their treaty rights, who knows how to work with the environmental players and the businesses. Um, So those are things that I think, you know, I hit the ground 
ready to do this job on day one. Well, you have touched on so much that we want to get to tonight, certainly racial equity, uh, the climate, so much more. Uh, Let's turn to you next, uh, Representative Kirby. Take just a few moments to introduce yourself and talk about uh, some of your key achievements during your time in office. You know, that's always my my favorite question. I remember in uh, 2016 was the last time I had an opponent for this uh, job. Um, and one of my young consultants, uh, many of you might know, Ben Anderstone, sat across the table from me and said, well, what bills have you passed? And, you know, I kind of said, well, gosh, you know, by the, at that time, I'd been there 16 years. And I was thinking, yeah, you know, I've done a few. I could rattle off a few that made their way to the, you know, TV news. But, you know, most most of my stuff is boring technical things having to do with business regulatory things and that sort of thing. So he looked at me and said, well, you don't know what bills you passed? And I said to him, well, what were you doing in, you know, the third Tuesday of February in 2008? And he said, well, I was... Uh, um, I was in junior high school, and so I told him what a funny guy he was. And, um, you know, of course, I I couldn't rattle off a lot of the bills that I'd passed. Well, it turns out he took, you know, he left uh, that meeting and he went and looked. And in that last uh, um, cycle, um, I had passed 25 bills. Now, to give you some perspective, uh, the average is five or six. Um, Someone who's busy passes maybe 11 or 12. I did 25. I had no idea. I just don't keep track. People walk into my office. Um, they usually have a little blue sheet of paper and, um, hey, can you help me? And if uh, what they want doesn't hurt anybody, I sign it. And I try to imagine the path to the governor's uh, desk. And that's what I do. Probably some of the most, probably the the biggest thing that I personally had uh, you know, the most to do with in my, um, that I think affects a lot of people's uh, lives is, um, and if you're a lawyer, you know what IFCA is, the Insurance Fair Conduct Act. I prime sponsored that in the House. And then after we passed it, the uh, um, insurance uh, industry spent a record back then, a record $11 million to try to defeat it in a referendum, and it passed overwhelmingly. I mean, I could go on and on with the, uh, they actually gave me a list that I'm, and, and told me to carry it around. Um, so, you know, but I, I, I do most of my work in my committee uh, where I pass consumer protection legislation. I've probably passed more consumer protection bills than anybody in the legislature. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Thank you to both of you uh, for those introductions. You know, we're going to move on to platform question uh, questions. And I was going to start with an issue that is top of mind for a lot of people right now, which is the Trump administration sending federal paramilitary troops into our cities. Uh, but we have just received word via the Seattle Times that these troops have left Seattle largely because of pressure from state officials. Uh, so instead, I will just ask, Charlotte, let's start with you. What are your thoughts generally on this situation? I think sending federal troops into our cities is a horrible abuse of power, uh, especially when we have peaceful protesters that are out there defending their right to walk to the grocery store or to sleep in their own homes without being murdered. Um, I think that also, as the news cycle sort of focuses on that, we detract from the real issue, which is police violence in our communities. And so I wish that we would continue to think about you know, who really is at the heart of this issue. Uh, you know, Manny Ellis was killed right in the heart of the 29th on 96 and Ainsworth, walking home from the grocery store. And we still don't have an answer to what happened exactly, right? I wanna focus my energy on the folks in Tacoma who have been experiencing police violence for a long time and who are crying out for solutions, who have been crying out for solutions for the first time are finally being heard. Um, So I think, you know, it's good. I think, you know, as someone who worked in the federal government um, for federal affairs, for Governor Inslee, I've experienced building coalitions with other states, with other governors, with other cities, um, you know, working with the Office of the Attorney General, working with nonprofits to basically put up a front of resistance to prevent these things from harming our communities. I'm really glad to see um, that they are no longer here. um, And I'm glad to see uh, folks be able to use their, their rights to peacefully protest what is unjust. 
do put a pin in your comment about police accountability because we definitely have a question about that. And I want you to go into a little bit more depth on that. Uh, Representative Kirby, let's turn to you next on this question. As I mentioned, these federal troops have now left Seattle, um, and it is largely because of state official pressure. I was going to ask what role you think state officials should be playing in pushing back against this, but I'll just ask you generally, as I did with Charlotte, what are your thoughts generally about the situation? Well, first of all, um, I'm shocked, really, and I'm and I'm serious about this. I'm I'm really surprised that Bob Ferguson hasn't sued them already. He's sued the Trump administration like 30 times or so, and he's won like almost every time. I think that you know, just generally, I think I think Donald Trump wants to turn the the public against the Black Lives um, Movement and uh, by creating unrest and and actually provoking violence. I I wish the news media would actually stop referring to the people causing all the mayhem as protesters because they're not protesters. They have a whole different agenda. And unfortunately, the Trump stormtroopers aren't differentiating. They're they're they're, they're enticing violence and, and deliberately harassing and arresting nonviolent protesters in an effort to intimidate them and, 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 and just make them look bad in hopes that it'll shut down the movement. Uh, I'm glad uh, that they're gone. I'm glad that uh, they're not in Seattle. I don't know what the, their status is in Portland, but that's, that's my take on what I saw there. And, and I'm, um, you know, good riddance as far as I'm concerned. Well, since you both mentioned racial equity, we'll we'll, we'll move on to that. Uh, in the weeks following the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers, we have seen attitudes on racial equity essentially invert, uh, with the majority of Americans now in support of Black Lives Matter. And I'm wondering, and this is largely because of the uprisings that you reference. How do you feel we can seize this moment to make lasting change on racial equity? Um, in, in, in the state, in your district, in this country. Uh, Representative Kirby, let's stay with you on that. Well, okay, so like many of us, I, I sat and watched helplessly as, as the, the police murdered someone while the cameras rolled. And, and that wasn't the first time. And, and I, I can tell you that a day doesn't go by that I don't worry about my two uh, African-American grandsons who um, often have to walk the streets of Seattle um, for fear that something will happen to them. Uh, this tragedy has uh, resulted in an op- really the opportunity of a lifetime, and we need to stay focused and not let it slip away. Um, it, it's not just about police reform. It's about really changing the, the world in which my two grandsons live. Uh, people from all walks of life are, are really they're consciously and sincerely embracing diversity, um, you know, equity, inclusiveness, like like never before in my lifetime. Um, when the legislature reconvenes, I think we need to seize the moment and and we need to look at everything through an equity lens and ensure that 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 people are are affected, you know, who are affected by all the decisions that we make, everything. Uh, that they have a seat at the table. Um, the world is 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 going to be different now. I'm, you know, and I'm I really hope um, that it stays that way. Yeah, and Charlotte Mena, same question to you. Uh, we dearly hope that change that is happening now is in some way permanent. And I'm wondering in your mind how we can seize upon this moment to really create that lasting change that we want to see. Yeah, well, suffice to say that this issue is not new, and it's especially not new in the 29th. I think what is new is that we are finally listening, right? As a collective state, folks are finally listening, because the Black Lives Matter movement didn't help overnight, right? And in fact, it's been going on for a very long time, and folks have been fighting for their civil rights for a very long time as well. Um, I think it is going to take leaders who listen um, and who shoulder the change that their communities want to see, right? Especially the Black community, which has been at the center of this violence. I want solutions to come from them, and I want to be able to shoulder that change. And we, you know, we don't have to be related to someone that's African-American to know that it's wrong for someone to be killed because of the color of their skin. These are just things that we know, right? And the numbers are in. The National Academy of Sciences tells us that one in every 1,000 black men can expect to be killed by the police. 
we need no further studies. And the reason that we've seen such a sustained and prolonged movement for Black Lives Matter is because unfortunately, folks are home right now due to this global health pandemic. And what that tells me is that when folks are exhausted, when they're working two jobs, they do not have time to go out and advocate for themselves. So it gets to the root of a, of a deeper issue, which is pay inequity, it's working poor, it's people who are making a minimum wage that is no longer a living wage. It's, you know, it's all of the above. So I think one of the things we need to do is address the root problems, right, and make sure that our folks have what they need and that we have leaders with lived experience who understand what it's like to not be heard and are gonna shoulder that change. You know, one story, um, and I'll share this quickly that I share over and over again, is that, you know, new members Junior members can make a difference. And we saw it happen in the state Senate when Senators Wynn and Randall and Wilson were elected. And they said, no, we will not agree to move the budget until we get the ban on affirmative action repealed. And they stood their ground and we got it. And that's exactly why representation matters. So I think it's going to take listening. I think it's going to take the right leaders and it's going to take a lot of change, systemic change. And related to this is something that you brought up earlier, which is uh, police violence, police accountability specifically. Um, and you mentioned Emmanuel Ellis, who was killed while he was in the custody of Tacoma police. This has led to calls to defund the police in Tacoma. I'm wondering, Charlotte, how you interpret what it means to defund the police and what specific changes would you like to see in policing in Tacoma and across the 29th? Yeah, so to me, defund is a very clear uh, cry for help and a very clear uh, statement that we are underfunding critical social services and that our communities are not getting what they need. So what I've heard from people is, why are we spending money on local law enforcement to purchase excess military equipment, um, to use body cameras that they're not actually going to use, um, and get all this stuff that is then weaponized on people when we don't have people showing up for behavioral health crises, for mental health crises, uh, for social health crises, just so on and so forth. So what I'm hearing is a call for us to be able to resource our communities in ways that they are under-resourced. And I'm committed to that. I agree. There are a number of reforms that we need, but we've tried reforms over and over again. And so I'm very, uh, I'm very sensitive to the call for something greater by our community. And as I said, those solutions must come from the community itself that is experiencing this violence. Um, you asked me another question, Stefan. What was that? I was I was asking you how you interpreted uh, defunding the police and then what specific changes you would like to see in policing in Tacoma. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you, you basically answered it. Yeah. I also wanted to touch a little bit further on accountability, because I think specifically in the case of Manuel Ellis, we've seen a shortcoming uh, and a failure to implement the rulemaking that came out of Initiative 940. And so essentially the independent investigation, as well as you know, whether we had the community liaisons and the family liaisons, and certainly we haven't seen that. So I think as a legislator, you know, it's incumbent upon us to use that role to ensure that that rulemaking is in fact implemented and that there is accountability in such cases so we can achieve justice. Yeah, I-940 was the de-escalation initiative that was then passed into law by the legislature. Um, same question to you, Representative Kirby. I'm curious how, how you frame the question of hashtag defund the police, what that means to you specifically, and then what changes would you like to see implemented in the 29th legislative district? So when when I was a, a young city councilman in my 20s back in the 70s, um, things were different. Police, you know, I, I knew police officers and I was a city councilman. And, and you know what? They were people I grew up with. They were They were people I went to school with. Um, they were people with roots in the community who became police officers for all the right reasons. Um, that's changed. I haven't been a city council member in 20 years, but what I know is that these days um, we recruit too many of our police really from the military, and it shows. Being a soldier is, uh, is way different it's just a different job than being a police officer, or at least it should be. And I'm certain that, you know, we can, uh, we can finish the job that we started with I-940 and, and impose real accountability and substantial meaningful reforms um, to help weed out racism in our, um, in our police departments. 
to answer the question, I think you, really we can repurpose the job of a police officer. Um, we could de demilitarize their behavior, and that means that you know some of them aren't going to make the cut, and and we you know we just can't keep doing things the way we have and expect a different result. Um, you know, perhaps some of those uh, uh, police slots can be uh, filled by people who are trained in other types of work that, uh, that they might be called upon to be able to do out in the field. Um, that's entirely possible. We need to completely relook at, at uh, what police do. Right now, they go out and, and it's like they're, they're hunting for the enemy, and that's wrong. I want to shift over and talk about something else that's very top of mind for people right now, which is the COVID response. Right now, as we all know, we're seeing a dramatic spike in COVID cases across the state. Uh, according to the most recent reporting from the Tacoma Pierce County Health Department, there have been over 1,200 reported cases in Pierce County alone in the last 14 days. Uh, Representative Kirby, let's stay with you on this. From a public health standpoint, what should we be doing differently to meet this crisis? Well, okay, so let me begin. Of course, right now, uh, as we all know, the, the governor has broad emergency powers and and, um, and he basically is calling all the shots right now. And truly, I think that he is doing the best he can with what he, he has to work with. Um, the uh, COVID denier in chief telling the public that the whole thing is a hoax, uh, that it's just gonna fade away that you can drink disinfectant, that sort of thing. Unfortunately, there are still people who, well, they, they believe that he couldn't say those things if it weren't true, and they believe every word that he says. And there's also a lot of wishful thinking on the part of people who are, are desperate. They're out of work and they're desperate. Um, and and they, they want things to open up. And, you know, of course, and there's always a certain amount of, of ignorance. And I've and I hate to say it, but that's the only thing I wish uh, that the governor, the governor would uh, have done differently would be to allow more input into his decision making. Um, and I'm guessing that the next time the legislature convenes, uh, I won't be shocked if we didn't, you know, impose at least some degree of legislative oversight on his emergency powers. But um, all in all, uh, you know, he's going by the science, uh, what he's asking us to do. If we would do it, it would work. And, and, and so that's the trick. Well, same question to you, Charlotte Mena. Um, and it's your opinion, uh, really, but, you know, because we're, we're talking about things that are largely under the purview of the governor. But I will ask from a public health standpoint, what do you feel that we could be doing differently as a state to meet this crisis? I think what we're doing is right. We are following the science and we're making sure that we're, you know, using that to make informed decisions. So for example, we saw a great big spike in Yakima and then we saw, you know, masks, you know, for I went from 68% of people using masks to 95% and then we saw a steep decline. So I know that the uh, emergency management has been uh, giving out millions of, you know, cloth face coverings and I think that's really going to help. So I think, you know, as a legislator, I want to be someone who's supporting that funding and making sure that we have what we need um, and ensuring that folks are getting that PPE. Um, as well as, I mean, I, I want to go back to this and just think about where do we see the spike occurring, right? And it's often black and brown communities and it's often frontline workers. And so it just, it compounds on pre-existing health disparities. And we have to be aware of that when we think about how do we address this issue? You know, we need to think about healthcare for all. You know, I'm a very big supporter of healthcare for all. That's why I've received the endorsement of Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal because we share that value and that's what we're working toward. And that goes for, you know, our undocumented neighbors as well because if there's anything that we've learned from this crisis, it's that the health of one affects the health of all. So I think it benefits us all, you know, healthcare, just a basic human right, but is also good for public as a whole. And, you know, we're heading into flu season. We just had a measles outbreak in the state of Washington, and all of this is sort of swirling. You know, as a constituent, I was very disappointed to see Mr. Kirby vote against the vaccines bill that was going to require children to get vaccinated unless they had a valid exemption. You know, and I don't want to look too deep into the past because this is about the future, but it would be devastating for us to deal with a measles outbreak or a bad flu season on top of COVID. You know, we have a hard enough time getting adults to get immunizations. So let's focus on getting 
vaccines, let's actually follow the science, let's not spread misinformation, and let's make sure that we can get a free vaccine, uh, especially to our frontline workers as soon as possible. You know, I had said that we weren't going to uh, have a debate this evening, but since you've brought that up, it is only fair for me to give 30 seconds to Representative Kirby to respond to that. Representative Kirby? Yeah, thanks. Um, That was a how can I, how can I, what's the best way to do this? So here's what I thought the bottom line was for me in any event. I just wanted to reserve at least some way for under the right circumstances for parents to be able to um, have the final say. That's all. Um, I don't think you're going to have a whole ton of people there. You know, there are certain communities where that was a problem. It's not here. Um, I just want you to know. I mean, that's 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 not the biggest complaint in the in the uh, school system. So that was the uh, the the thinking was. I just wanted something. They weren't being heard sometimes by their doctors, and they just needed to have at least some way. Okay, thank you for that. I want to continue on with uh, COVID from the economic recovery standpoint. Uh, we know that there's going to be an economic impact that's going to be felt for years. We also know that parts of the 29th have struggled economically before the pandemic. So I'm wondering in light of that, and Charlotte, we'll go to you on this. How do you see the path to economic recovery in the 29th now with the added burden of COVID-19? Yeah, well, I think that a lot of our businesses are getting really creative. You know, I think we need both to prioritize public health and the economy, and there has to be a way we can do that, right? So there are folks that are doing takeout only. There are folks that are doing curbside pickup. I think we have to absolutely prioritize public health, you know, and and there's a way to sort of keep the economy going uh, because we're probably going to be dealing with this for at least another year, right? So in the state legislature, for me, it would be a priority as we think about going into economic recession to preserve programs that help working people like the people in the 29th to that help children, that help families. And then at the same time, look ahead and think about how are we going to recover, right? We can't just stop the damage. We have to, at the same time, start recovery. So for me, that's progressive tax reform. It's making sure that we have enough funding in the pot uh, to fund education and community health centers and mental health services and so on. And of course, it takes a few years for that to come into the pot, but we, there are services that are do not touch services. There, there are, if we eliminate housing services, if we eliminate things that help our students and people that are just hanging on by a thread, things are going to be much worse in the long term. Now, going forward, I think we have a lot of people in the 29th who have to commute outside of the district to find work. Um, I want to bring jobs to the district, and I want to do that by sort of melding it with how we build a new green energy economy, watershed restoration, cleanup projects, green infrastructure. That's going to bring good paying jobs to the district, and it's going to help us build a more sustainable future, both financially and for our environment. We see how interconnected all of this is, because, of course, I have some questions about job creation and the climate as well. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's a very holistic uh, issue. And, and I'll turn the question back over to you, Representative Kirby. Uh, in terms of the way that the 29th is going to have to rebound from the COVID-19 pandemic economic impact, uh, many parts of the 29th are already struggling economically. How do you meet that challenge? So I think there really are, are, are lots of things that we can that we could do to safely open up portions of uh, our state's uh, economy. Um, but we have to do it in, a, in, in accordance with the actual science. And the governor, I think, needs to do a better job of allowing input, um, you know, from others besides his own advisors. Uh, there's a great deal of frustration, uh, at least on, in, in my um branch of the government because there's a wealth of knowledge and expertise in the legislative branch and and they could tap into that. Um, uh, we're out and about in our districts. We see what it takes to keep people safe as they go about their business. And, and in order for that to succeed, um, I would just say that we, the government, we need to win back the public's confidence. There, there are normal, rational people who don't believe that the problem is real or that or that social distancing guidelines are legitimate. And, and again, I blame the Trump administration. But, uh, you know, in, in terms of, you know, we could, if we, 
if we would maybe you know think it through, open up a lot of uh, different businesses that employ people. We would put thousands of people back to work all over the state, including the 29th district. Well, that leads directly into my next question, which is about the the green jobs uh, climate transition. And I will just note that both of you have done your share of work on the climate. Representative, you uh, recently prime sponsored an emergency declaration on the environment. And Charlotte, you've worked with the governor's office to push back against the Trump administration's many terrible uh, envi- environmental policies. I know that both of you support this transition to green economy. So let's talk brass tacks here. Uh, Representative Kirby, how specific, you're mentioning jobs. How specifically do you see the transition to green energy happening in the state? And what specific job opportunities do you see in the 29th? So, you know, uh, we're not running out of time. Um, uh, we're out of time. Uh, we're in the midst of a climate emergency every bit as significant um, as the COVID pandemic, really, truly. Um, and we have to treat it similarly. Uh, ideally, uh, you know, we need to solve this problem at the national level and join the rest of the world in preventing the demise of the planet. But in the meantime, states, you know, need to take action uh, every way they can. Uh, we should declare a climate emergency and, and give the governor emergency power to adopt policies that will automatically take effect unless. The legislature overturns them. Um, I, I know I've only got a, a couple of minutes, but you know, just just to you know, we have a, we have one of the one of the country's leading experts in in climate change as our governor. You know, um, this is this is an area where I was I was complaining about him reopening the economy. Well, hey, this is one where you know this is this is a person who has my confidence one hundred percent. And uh, he talks about, you know, all the, the green economy nonstop if you ever sit in his office. Well, so you have a few moments left if you want to talk about specific job opportunities uh, that you see in the transition in the 29th. Well, no, you know, I don't I don't have any. This, of course, is not my uh, my area of expertise. I do, you know, um, I work on on consumer protection and and you know uh, financial institutions and insurance regulation and and uh, of course I'm on the committee that does alcohol, tobacco, gambling, and marijuana. Um, you know, so um, that's where I spend the bulk of my time. You know, there are but there there are manufacturing opportunities to you know generate um, alternative power sources that could be done. Um, you know. At, at least within commuting, you know, uh, distance of the 29th, if not in the 29th, we do have available lands that could be utilized for that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, Charlotte, same question to you, uh, specifically how you see this transition to green jobs happening here in the state. And then do you see specific job opportunities for residents of the 29th here? Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's important that we have a representative who can think through these issues and understands exactly and can tell us exactly how they're going to bring jobs to the district. So Washington State has been very forward um, on fighting climate change. We just passed 100% clean, uh, which means that we're going to have 100% clean grid. Um, and there's a lot of more things we can do, right? We still need to pass a clean fuel standard. What about getting folks to work doing charging infrastructure? What about getting folks to work doing culvert removal, right? We've been mandated to remove culverts. That's going to help with salmon recovery. It's going to help us meet treaty tribal obligations, and it's going to get people back to work. You know, we also, there are areas of the district that don't have sidewalks, right? Like we should be as legislators investing in that portion of the transportation budget that's going to create sidewalks and bike lanes and invest in more public transit. Those are all jobs that can come to the district. You know, additionally, we have a Washington Conservation Corps, which is a great program for young people. So as folks are coming out of college, they may not be ready to seek employment because there's hiring freezes everywhere. So we, you know, we can implore our federal partners who are doing stimulus package after stimulus package. And I don't know what's going to happen with this one. It's, you know, things, things, 
it's hard to get enough votes to turn the lights on, my old boss used to say in Congress. But, you know, folks want to put money back into the economy and we can get young people working on environmental projects. We can invest in watershed restoration. We can buy for those grants. And most of the money that we spend in watershed restoration gets circled right back into the local economy. These are things we can be doing and buying for right now. And we absolutely should be doing that on the 29th. Just a follow up. There's an audience question, and this is about the liquefied natural gas plant that uh, is happening in Tacoma. There's currently an appeal to the Pollution Control Hearings Board against it, uh, and it is not taking place in the 29th, I should stipulate, but residents of the 29th could absolutely be affected if anything goes wrong here. And so this is a very brief question, but uh, Charlotte, we'll stay with you on this. What's your stance on this construction? I don't support it. Uh, it's it's a fossil fuel facility that is being built uh, on the Port of Tacoma in an area that is already high emitting. And like I said, we have some of the worst air pollution from industry and from traffic on I-5, as well as poor water quality. You know, it's not supported by the Kellop tribe of Indians. Um, it's not supported by people here. If we are serious about tackling climate change, we cannot invest in a new fossil fuel plant, even if it's, quote, cleaner than whatever we have right now. We don't have time for that transition. Time is up, right? We need to be ending our reliance on fossil fuel. Um, and, and I'm serious about this. I think, you know, we need leaders who walk the talk. Um, I'm the only candidate in this race who's not taking fossil fuel money. And that's because I want to work for the people and I want to send a clear and unequivocal message that I'm here to take action on climate. Right. Like we have businesses and, and, and they'll say we support a carbon fee and then they're spending millions of dollars defeating the initiative in Washington. That is not the kind of leader I want to be. Representative Kirby, let's put that same question to you. Um, and it could be, be very brief. I'm just wondering what your stance is generally on the construction of the liquefied natural gas facility that is being built in the port of Tacoma and the potential fallout that could uh, you know, affect residents of the 29th district. Yeah, so it's my understanding that uh, the reason that it's being built is they got in just under the wire um, um, before certain things took effect, and um, uh, and unfortunately, I think we're. It's my understanding. I think if we, if the legislature could have stopped it, I'm guessing we would have by now. But here's my thinking. Uh, I have seen footage of you know natural gas fires and explosions that, that give me pause. And if I were making the decision to allow for the construction of that facility, I would have to be uh, convinced that a catastrophic explosion, um, you know, wouldn't be possible. And you know what, I'm, I'm not convinced. I just don't see how that um, facility can be safe. Now, I don't claim to, you know, understand uh, the science of it. Don't claim any of that. Um, I just, just the the idea of it just seems like enormously dangerous to me. And they'd, they'd, they'd have to really convince me, right? If the vote were held today, I'd be a no. Okay. Thanks to both of you uh, for that. Let's shift gears and talk about healthcare. So according to recent figures by the Office of Financial Management, some 700,000 Washingtonians have been thrown off their healthcare coverage, largely due to the pandemic and mostly because their healthcare was tied to their employment. Uh, Representative Kirby, what do you feel can be done in the immediate to help these specific individuals? And then over the long term, how do you see a pathway to universal coverage for all Washingtonians? Well, okay, so of course the legislature, you know, took a step forward, you know, with our our Cascade Care Health Plan, but you know that, you know, of course, things changed right after we we did so. Um, that would be something that would need to be made available, um, you know, to those who are left in the lurch as a result of the pandemic. Ultimately, I'm a a, a, a proponent of of a single payer system. There's more than one way to do that, but we should we should have a single payer system like every place else in the world. Um, the way the way to do that, and I'm hopeful that uh, we are approaching a time after the election when. Uh, a single payer system will be a reality uh, across the country. Uh, in the meantime, we need to do everything we can at the state level to, you know, again, um, with a $9 billion, um, you know, budget hole, 
some of these things might be sort of tricky business, but um, that is the answer is a single payer system nationwide. So uh, same question to you, Charlotte, uh, just looking at the picture from the state level, uh, I'm, I'm curious to get a take on how you conceptualize and view the problem of, of getting to universal coverage for all Washingtonians. And then I would also be curious to hear your thoughts on how we might be able to help these 700,000 individuals who have recently been thrown off of their health care. Yeah, it's a really big problem. And I think it cuts to the core of what folks have been saying for a long time, which is that employer-based healthcare doesn't really make sense, especially in a 21st century economy, right? A gig economy, an economy where folks are switching jobs a lot more regularly than they used to. And then we see something like this happen. So the Office of the Insurance Commissioner extended the open enrollment period um, when this global pandemic hit. I am a very big supporter of that. Uh, additionally, I think there's like a qualifying event for folks, you know, if they lose their jobs, they have another 60 days. I want that to be longer because I know that, you know, there's just too many ups and downs, right? Whether folks are getting furloughed for a day out of the week, a month or so on and so forth. Um, so there are people that are going to be qualifying for Apple Care, and then there are folks who are going to be able to get insured on the exchange. There's kind of a middle tier of people that tend to fall through the cracks. You know, if you don't qualify for Apple Care, um, but you're not making enough to get a good quality insurance plan, you're getting some, some pretty bad coverage um, with really high deductibles and premiums. And we also need to address that, especially at a time like this. Um, so I think, you know, number one is helping the folks that have fallen through the cracks at the moment. And number two is thinking about how do we get healthcare for all? And I do mean healthcare for all that is comprehensive, vision, dental, sexual and reproductive rights, gender affirming services for every single person, whether they are documented or a permanent resident or an undocumented resident. Um, like I said, that's good for public health. It's good for Washington. It is a basic right. And, you know, there are things we can do. Of course, a, a healthcare for all system that is nationwide will need to come from Congress. But we have passed a public option parity at the state, and we can do a health care for all parity at the state. And I would like to support that and work toward that goal in Washington state. We just got a question here, an audience question from Guillermo. He says, uh, Tacoma is home to many colleges and college students. During a recession, funding for financial aid is first on the chopping block. What would you do as representative to preserve and increase the access and affordability to college in the 29th and statewide? Uh, Charlotte, let's stay with you on that. I, I think it's important that we continue to invest in our students because when we talk about rebuilding an economy that is more just and equitable and we talk about bringing jobs to the 29th, we also have to prepare the next generation of students to take those jobs. So we can't put a pause on that if we're serious about recovering the economy. You know, we just uh, saw the legislature pass the Washington College Grant that's going to cover 100% of the cost for certain students. I actually think we should double down on that and invest more. You know, we do need that progressive revenue so that we can keep funding our biggest priorities. And I consider this to be absolutely one of them. OK, same question to you, Representative Kirby. Uh, what would you do to as a representative to preserve and increase uh, the access to affordability to, uh, to college in the 29th and statewide? Well, unlike the uh, federal government, uh, um, we uh, in state government can't print our own money um, and and. So we're not a bottomless pit of money. Our, our budgets have to be balanced. And like I indicated earlier, we're, we're somewhere between eight and $9 billion uh, upside down. Our goal, and we have these discussions about once a week uh, as a caucus, um, our goal is to do everything we can to pass a balanced budget that salvages as many of the um, good progressive programs and policies that we have worked so hard to pass in, in recent years. The reality is that we can't cut our way out of this crisis. And so, um, you know, we do have to hope for some federal relief, but, but we have to look at additional revenue. We just do. In that regard, everything is on the table, eliminating tax exemptions, increasing taxes, additional taxes. It's not going to be pretty. I can, I promise you that. The problem with, you know, the most recent progressive tax proposals uh, uh, that have been, uh, that are on the table right now, only generate a few hundred million dollars and, and much of that won't come right away. For example, the capital gains tax won't bring in a dime for a year after it becomes effective. Um, the ones that generate the most revenue that will allow us, this is all about the money. Uh, the thing, the the thing that will allow us the, to most to, to raise the most revenue 
in the shortest amount of time are the sales tax, the property tax, and the B&O tax. And, you know, here we go again. It's, we have the most regressive tax system um, in the country, but we just don't have any other viable way to go for now. Since you brought that up, um, Charlotte, you had touched on this earlier, and I will give you the floor to uh, really uh, fully express some of the the thoughts that you that you have on this. Um, we do know that Washington has the most upside down uh, tax structure in the country, as a representative was just laying out. Um, we have an over-reliance on sales tax, which obviously, in addition to impacting lower-income families disproportionately, also fails to provide meaningful revenue during a pandemic because people can't spend. So uh, let's, let's hear from you on this. What specific things would you like to do? to reform our tax structure. And I, I would love to hear it framed in, in the way that the, the representative just talked about in terms of the way that these things could be rolled out in, in a timeline. Yeah, understood. Yeah. Well, I think, like you said, we've seen the shortfalls of the structure that we have right now, right? Uh, when we rely too much on sales tax, and then people get laid off and they don't spend money, we don't have that revenue anymore. Additionally, when we talk about property tax, you know, this is a big contributor to the housing and homelessness crisis that we're seeing and people getting pushed out of their homes when they can no longer afford the property taxes in the neighborhoods that they live in and potentially grew up in. So these may be the quickest way to get money, but they're not the most, uh, you know, they're the hardest on our people in the long term. So I would like to see specifically, yes, a capital gains tax. I want to see a high earners tax. Uh, if we want to do something like a sales tax, we or a, sorry, like a, a wealth tax, we'll have to look at how exactly we can do that in the state. Maybe it's an excise tax on the sales of stocks and bonds. You know, we have to think about how do we get our highest income earners to pay their fair share into these systems? Because we do have folks that are our lowest income earners paying up to 18% of their income in sales tax and our highest income earners paying as little as 3%. And by the way, I talk to thousands and thousands and thousands of voters in the 29th and progressive tax reform is the thing that they care about the most. And when I talk to folks that are high income earners, they've often said to me, tax me, tax me. I may not like it, but I get it, right? And so if we want a more just and equitable society, we cannot shy away from saying these words. And we definitely have to be brave and take this opportunity you know, to galvanize this moment when we get to decide what the next 20, 40, 50 years are going to look like and make those decisions now. We have gotten kind of inundated with questions about unions, both before we began our program tonight and then during the program itself. So I will ask a couple of questions here. We can combine these. Uh, Janie asks, what will you do to protect collective bargaining rights for our unions? And Anita asks, if you have a bill related to labor unions, who would you call for background information or questions? Uh, Let's stay with you, Charlotte. Yeah, well, I want to stop right to work policies. Uh, Our unions are made up of our workers and we have to listen to our workers. So collective bargaining is a very important tool that people have to make sure that they get their fair uh, pay, to make sure that they get their fair benefits. And I'm 100% behind that. Um, And what was your second question? The second question was, if you had a bill related to labor unions, who would you call for background information or questions? Do you have somebody that you would go to on labor issues? Yeah, well, I mean, so all all of the unions have um, a representative in Olympia that basically does this work um, of being the liaison. I would love to work with those people who have a direct in line to the community, as well as uh, community members that are in the labor unions or elected to labor uh, positions themselves. I mean, honestly, we have to frame, um, you know, our policy around the folks who are have that lived experience every day. So I, I can't imagine making a policy decision about a group without including them in it or centering their voices. Same question to you then, uh, Representative Kirby. Uh, what will you do to, and, and, and really, what have you done during your tenure to protect collective bargaining rights for unions? And uh, is there somebody that you confer with when uh, you're uh, trying to get background information or questions on bills related to labor? Sure. So, first of all, let me just say that I value my 100% labor voting record. Um, you know, my, my campaign is endorsed by the State Labor Council, the WEA, the American Federation of Teachers, um, gosh, the Federation of State Employees, a couple of SEIU unions, um, the Nurses Association, I mean, just go on and on and on. I've, I've um, 
um, those things are, are obviously uh, really uh, important to me. And um, I go, you know, I, I have the luxury of, uh, of knowing all the lobbyists uh, for, for years. I've, I'm on my second generation of lobbyists for uh, labor unions right now. Um, and I'll just flat out tell you, first of all, I go to the uh, chair of the labor committee, uh, Representative Mike Sells. Uh, is a as a um, he's one of the few people down there who's older than me, and he uh, um, is a, is an old uh, you know labor uh, negotiator from way back. Uh, locally, what I usually do if I really am in a hurry and I need to know, I call up uh, my uh, LA and I say, um, "Get me Brenda Weist on the phone. She is a, a representative of the uh, of the of the Teamsters, uh, and she lives in Pierce County. Uh, I know her well." Um, she speaks uh, fluent uh, Steve, and uh, so she uh, um, she she can get right in my face and tell me exactly how she feels, and that's okay, and we both know it. Um, but I'm, you know, I've got a number of different um, contacts depending on what the issue is and and who it would impact in terms of um, the you know the the part of organized labor that would be uh, uh, in, impacted. We just have a few minutes left here, and I, I do want to stick with audience questions from here on out. I do want to uh, acknowledge and recognize that we have Senator Dr. Rosa Franklin with us tonight. Welcome to you. Um, let's ask a question uh, of both of you that, that we had uh, from an audience member who wrote in to us asking about equity in education. And Representative Kirby, we'll, we'll start with you on this. Um, According to the research that I have done, it is indicated that schools in Tacoma and Pierce County do not have a substantial number of teachers or counselors that represent the population of BIPOC students in the schools, nor do the schools have a substantial portion of their curriculum devoted to BIPOC history and experience. How would you use or how have you used your influence to try to change that? So educational disparities we know um, disproportionately uh, impact um, students of color, English language learners, um, and, and students from lower income homes. Um, you know, the, things like uh, discipline practices and access to special education and, and uh, language services, just the facilities, just on and on. Um, these things are bad enough, but the situation is made, is, is made worse um, by those, uh, the fact that those students are being taught by people who don't look like them. And I'm not sure what the answer is, but we could really start by making college more accessible to more BIPOC students so that they could um, get, you know, teaching certificates. Uh, one way to do that would be to continue, and I think as uh, Charlotte suggests, um, do the best we can to maybe increase funding for the Washington uh, College Grant. Uh, families earning less than $50,000 a year are eligible for um, free tuition. Um, and, um, you know, I think that would be a way to attract uh, people into the classroom who are the ones um, that um, really need to be there. And I think that um, not having access to higher education might be one of the barriers to that. And so I'm, I'm proud of the fact it was a, that was, that's a huge milestone when we passed that bill. It takes effect this fall, although frankly, I don't know exactly how it's gonna work out with you know, how school is going to be. Well, Charlotte, let's continue the conversation on this with you. Um, so, and this was an audience question, and I had to do a little bit of research on this, but it, it, my, my research indicates that schools in Tacoma and Pierce County do not have a substantial number of teachers or counselors that represent the population of BIPOC students, nor do those same schools have a substantial portion of their curriculum devoted to BIPOC history and experience. So we know that the curriculum happens uh, at the school board level, but uh, we also know that representatives have a good deal of, of influence here. How would you use your influence to impact this? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, and I just want to start by saying that we have some really incredible teachers in the 29th who do really incredible work. And I've talked to many of them, but you're right. You know, there are not many teachers who are representative of the constituents and the students that they serve because in the 29th, 54% of our students are students of color. And we know that that's not reflected in the staffing um, and in the teaching staff. And, you know, as a student, I, I had that experience, right? I, I went through the system, uh, public education system, and, and did not see a lot of leaders, uh, Mexican-American leaders or African-American leaders, um, really be central to some of our learnings. And so, you know, there are things we can do at the legislature. Of course, we can, you know, uh, direct OSPI to um, say, here, we want this to be a part of the cl- curriculum. We want you to teach climate change. We want you to teach indigenous history. And then it is up to the school board. But I think, you know, those of us with lived experience really have the opportunity to educate our colleagues um, and to really use our position there to make a difference. And I'll share a story with you because one of my favorite bills that I ever got to work on, you know, and go to the bill signing up was the Cesar Chavez Day bill. And that was a bill that was um, championed by Senator Saldana in the Senate, um, who I got to work with and write for. And that day that we did the bill signing in Yakima, my whole family came from Pasco and, you know, Mexican family, it's like 15 people and (laughs) we're there for the bill signing. And we were all just crying because that is for the first time my niece is going to see a leader of the farm workers union be uh have his own holiday and and really honor his work and honor our community and honor the work of our fathers and mothers i think that's why representation is so important so that's what i would do there are so many more questions that unfortunately we just simply don't have time to get to uh i will make sure that uh both you charlotte and you representative kirby get the the remainder of the questions that came from constituents so you can answer them yourselves uh just a final couple questions uh charlotte some uh, final words from you uh and and just let us know where people can find out more about your campaign yeah so i just want to thank you again for this opportunity um to speak to the voters i you know i love this community. It's ever evolving. It's ever increasingly diverse. It's ever increasingly younger. The things that we need are constantly changing. And like I said, when I think of the community, I think of grit. I think of perseverance. I think of hard workers. And I think of us, you know, really deserving leadership that reflects those values that is going to represent every single person. You know, we deserve a leader who is going to vote with us on our civil rights and vote yes on marriage equality. We deserve a leader who is going to vote to protect the people and not the predators. While we're waiting for her to reestablish, uh, I will turn the floor over to you, Representative Kirby. Uh, tell us, i, I just give you a, f- a few moments to close and then just tell us about where people can learn more about your campaign. Well, thank you very much. Um, you know, I was born and raised uh, in the 29th District. Uh, uh, if you're familiar with uh, the South Tacoma area, I was born uh, in a in in what we called the projects known as uh, um, Lincoln Lincoln Heights. Um, right about uh, uh, my house was right about where the parking lot is of the police station over there. It's long gone. Um, and and I've seen this uh, I've seen this this district change and then change back and then change back again. I I know the people that I represent. Um, and, you know, and, and I know what they expect of me. I do. And, and so that's what I try to do is, is to be their voice. And um, if, if I can, um, um, you know, I do, I just, gosh, I don't even know, know um, how, to, how to close out. But the fact of the matter is, I've been doing this since I was um, 25 years old. And uh, I'll keep doing it. You know, I think I said to the News Tribune and they brought it up in their uh, endorsement. uh, You know, um, someday somebody might have to take the keys away from grandpa. But I'm telling you that we are not there yet. Right now, they need people like me to get us through this crisis in Olympia. Thank you, uh, Representative Steve Kirby. Uh, Charlotte, are you back with us? Yeah. Please continue where you left off, if you will. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's a little hard when I uh, had internet problems, but, um, you know, I'm pleased to have also received the endorsement from the Tacoma News Tribune who said that, you know, I bring some revolutionary thinking and energy um, that is very much needed and that, you know, it's kind of up to the voters to decide 
you know, what they want. And I would say, look no further than to the streets to see people marching, demanding for change. Look no further than our youth who are, you know, tapping into a global movement, asking for action on climate. Look no further than the high schoolers who are saying no to gun violence and who are demanding that we stand up to the gun lobby. So I am here because I want to roll up my sleeves and work. I think we deserve that. Um, and I ask for your vote by August 4th. And you can find more information about me at charlottemenna.org. Um, I will put stuff in the chat. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as well. And again, thank you for your time. Thank you. And because podcasting and radio are a, an audio medium, uh, would you please spell your name for the, the URL? Absolutely. So it's S-H-A-R-L-E-T-T-M-E-N-A dot org. Uh, and you can find me at backslash elect Charlotte or at elect Charlotte on all of those mediums. Thank you again to Charlotte Mena and Representative Steve Kirby. Thank you also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Anjievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. And a big thank you to Robin Gittleman for her help. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address, as always, is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thank you to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.